Welcome everyone. My name is Dimash. I'm the host of the podcast and our guest for today is Arun Pai, who is the principal at the Monskill Ventures. Hi Arun, how are you? Hi Dimash, thanks so much for having me. Uh, first of all, let's start from your personal uh, background, where you was born and your where did you uh, study? Sure. Uh, so I was born in India, lived across uh, India, the UK and the Philippines uh, before going off to the US for my education. Uh, I started out at uh, Georgia Tech doing my undergraduate in uh, electrical engineering. Mm -hmm. And uh, what was your early career? I know the fact that you was working as an analyst at the Lehman Brothers, right? <laughs> yeah, that was a very interesting time to say the least. Uh, I believe it's still officially the world's largest bankruptcy. Uh, so yeah, a, a quality career choice uh, right there. Started out uh, at Lehman Brothers in New York. Uh, back then, in 2007, uh, Lehman was expanding so quickly across the globe. Uh, they basically shipped Asians back to Asia, Europeans back to Europe. Uh, so I ended up having to move from New York to Hong Kong. Uh, and then to Singapore, uh, all with Lehman Brothers uh, in 2007 itself. Uh, obviously, 2008, we all know what happened. Uh, Lehman went kaput, Namura took over, uh, and I spent about uh, nine and a half years uh, in investment banking, more specifically on the structuring uh, and then subsequently in the options trading desks uh, for on, in investment banking. Uh, after about 10 years uh, over there, I uh, thought it's time to reclaim my soul from the devil, uh, left investment banking. I always wanted to get into the investing uh, side of things, to be completely honest. Uh, but then my thought process was back then, you know, how do I look an entrepreneur in the eye if I haven't been in the trenches myself at one point? So uh, after about a decade in banking, thought uh, it's time to get into the entrepreneurship side of things first. Uh, I became part of the founding team at Crystal AI, which is a wealth tech platform uh, in Southeast Asia. Uh, and then uh, after spending about four years over there, moved into another fintech startup called Flow, uh, previously known as Asia Collect, uh, as the right-hand man of the founder at that point of time. Uh, and then after spending uh, six years in the startup space, uh, looked around for which are the interesting uh, venture capital funds that are out there. And uh, Monk's Hill Ventures values kind of matched that of my own. And I felt the partnership uh, from the founding members, Peng and Koei, as well as the rest of the partnership, Justin and Susley, were people whom I could honestly look up to and learn from. And uh, it was a bit of a no-brainer of a decision to uh, join Monk's Hill then. Mm -hmm. What was your uh, the way into venture? Is it, uh, you just sent the CV to Monk Hill's Ventures or let's see, uh, it was the warming intro? Yeah, so I had pitched uh, to a previous partner at Monk's Hill uh, in my previous startups. And I just generally knew a lot of people in the ecosystem. Uh, the way I actually got into Monksell about a year and a half ago was uh, a cold LinkedIn message uh, to our head of HR, Cheryl, at that point. And, uh, you know, kind of like what I told you uh, in the last uh, couple of minutes, uh, I just let her know my journey of uh, 
who I am and where I got to and why I am here reaching out to you. And uh, she decided to, uh, uh, you know, do my first initial screening interview and uh, then pass me over to the rest of the partnership uh, for a much more thorough, detailed interview process. About a month, month and a half later, uh, I was lucky enough to have the job. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the Monskill Ventures then. Uh, what's the structure of the firm and what's the investment thesis? Sure. Uh, so Monskill Ventures, uh, you know, maybe taking a step back, is an early stage regional venture capital fund uh, offices in Singapore, Jakarta, Ho Chi Minh, and soon to be Manila. Uh, hopefully by the end of the year. Uh, we typically lead uh, Series A rounds, check sizes between 3 million to 10 million USD uh, to begin with, uh, reserving a certain amount of capital for follow-on investments. Uh, we are sector agnostic. Uh, and as you can see by our regional footprint, you know our geo-mandate is uh, exclusively ASEAN. Mm -hmm. Our USP, uh, if you want to call it, is entrepreneurs backing entrepreneurs. And what I mean by that is all 14 members of the investments team have been uh, previous founders, have been on the operating side of the table at early stage startups in the past. Uh, so we love or we hope that we bring this empathy uh, to something like uh, investing, which typically is a lot more purely numbers oriented. Uh, to answer your second part of the question in terms of uh, you know, our strategy or our thesis, the way I like to think about it is you know, something that Seth Klarman, uh, the founder of uh, Ballpost Group, one of the most successful value investors of all time, has kind of quoted where you go a mile wide, which basically means we literally try to see and meet any interesting founder, any interesting early stage startup that's out there. And when you find something interesting, you go a mile deep, right? So we are generalists by nature. Uh, we'll try and scope out the entire uh, ecosystem of early stage founders. And once we lock into something or someone that's interesting, we'll then try to map out the industry, the surrounding ecosystem to try and understand where the modes of the business can be, where will value accrue, across the entire players within that business vertical uh, and then hopefully make a bet on the back of the strength of the founding team. So mm -hmm. that, you know, you know, that that's the way how we think about uh, investing. Uh, at Big Sky Capital, uh, where I'm the, the associate, we have the one of the core theses is to invest in the immigrant founders from the Central Asia, from the CIS region, that want to scale to the US, to the Southeast Asia market. Uh, do you invest in the founders from Southeast Asia that wants to go to US or the, to Europe, for example? Yeah, so uh, interesting question. Uh, the way we look at it is our geo mandate is Southeast Asia, right? Most of our capital comes from US institutions who in turn, have an asset allocation process where they've deployed a certain amount of capital or they've entrust, entrusted Monk's Hill with their capital to be deployed in Southeast Asia. So at the, at the stage that we invest in. So we've got a whole, we've got like over 40, 45 companies in our portfolio that are live at the moment and seen various success stories, right? Where either you have 
founders either who were born and brought up over here or immigrant founders who are residing in this region at the point of time that we make our investment, who expanded across the region, or people who've decided that their business model is more suitable to expand into Japan or the US. Uh, so we've had success stories like that also. So we, we've seen a good mix of uh, both founders who are building for this region, which is one of our more core focuses, and founders who are based here who are building for the globe uh, that we've seen more of in the past uh, couple of years. Mm -hmm. Uh, let's talk more broadly about the region. Uh, what do you think makes the Southeast Asia uh, so attractive to investment? Yeah, so uh, look, I, I do have to uh, give a disclaimer first, I would say. The, the ecosystem is very, very nascent, right? Like I, I would say it's less than uh, 10 years old, which in the grand scheme of things, it, it is extremely short to try and build truly amazing businesses, though we are seeing green shoots of that already. That being said, though, uh, you know, from the perspective of the region, it's got some amazing macro tailwinds, right? I mean, if you look at a whole bunch of them, like demography, growth in GDP, rising middle class, willingness to adopt a technology, well, maybe not paying for that technology just yet, but uh, hopefully over the next five, 10 years, we'll get there also. Uh, political stability by the large part. It's truly made this region extremely attractive for foreign capital. And uh, that's what we've been seeing in the ecosystem, the way the ecosystem has thrived uh, in the last uh, five, seven, eight, 10 years. Mm -hmm. And what can you tell about the VC land landscape there? Uh, is it uh, fragmented or more collaborative? Is it the foreign investments or the uh, from the Southeast Asia countries' government money in general? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, considering that I've been in this, uh, the startup ecosystem uh, and the VC ecosystem for the last uh, eight years, give or take, uh, right at the beginning, uh, I would say when we launched Crystal AI back in 2016, uh, it was a much smaller ecosystem, right? There were a few players, both on the startup side as well as on the fund side. So I think things were a lot more collegial. Now, of course, uh, when you've got a whole bunch of uh, startups as well as VC funds, I, I would say it's like a frenemy culture in a way where at the end of the day, you know, in certain startups, you could be sitting on the same board uh, you know, trying to make investment decisions together. And on the other side, you're still trying to do your best out there to try to find the next Google or Facebook or Grab or GoTo uh, coming back closer to the region, right? So it, it's it's a healthy competitive environment, which is what you expect from uh, uh, open markets, capitalism, et cetera, right? So from all of those perspectives, I think uh, it's an extremely exciting uh, upcoming ecosystem, uh, both on the startup side as well as on the VC side. In terms of, uh, to address your second question, like in terms of capital and where, uh, you know, who funds us, uh, I would say if you go back in time, uh, like eight, 10 years ago, uh, people in Singapore, especially the venture capital funds, you would, you do have to thank the Singapore government 
right? Like via their investment arm, Temasek, they basically seeded a whole bunch of venture capital funds back in the day, uh, us included, right? So that was the start of the ecosystem, I would say. Over the past uh, five, seven years, you've seen uh, this entire ecosystem thriving. We've seen capital sources coming from US institutions, which is uh, a lot of people that where we raise capital from. Uh, you've got a whole bunch of foreign VCs that have set up local subsidiaries or uh, ASEAN branches of their global operations over here. You've seen, uh, especially in Indonesia uh, and Vietnam, uh, two of the more uh, forward countries in the ASEAN region, I would say, uh, at least in terms of the VC startup ecosystem, we're seeing a lot more uh, local VCs being set up over there. So I think mm -hmm. if you look at the ecosystem, uh, you know, by 20,000 feet view in the air, you're seeing uh, local country-specific VCs, you're seeing regional VCs across the ASEAN region, and you're seeing global VCs who set up shop over here also. So I think it's those three broad verticals that you can kind of like uh, categorize the VC ecosystem into. And then further, a subcategory would be either generalists or a lot more like industry-focused VC funds. So it's just a natural evolution, something that Silicon Valley went through, you know, about 30 years ago. Uh, China went through its own process about, say, 10, 15 years ago. India went through that process more like 5 to 10, 10 plus years ago. Uh, we're kind of going through that right now. All right, all right. Um, last month, I read the article in the Take in Asia uh, with the statement that first half of the 2023 was the record least funded half since the 2020, I guess, with the overall 2.3 billion investment in the VC deals. Uh, what's happened there? <laughs> yeah, I, I just knew this question was going to come at some point, right? <laughs> Look, the way I think about it is it's a pendulum, right? You can go as far back as like to the 1600s when there was a tulip mania. Capital rushed into the region, rushed into buying tulips, and then equally quickly left. So, so basically my point is with capitalism, there will always be booms and busts right? Capital was, will flow very quickly to geographies, to sectors that are hot, and then we'll get, we'll get pulled away when it finds the next more interesting thing. Right now, it just seems to be U.S. treasuries that are giving you five plus percent, right? But, but it, the, the bottom line is it will always look to be deployed into the most attractive risk-reward assets, and, and that's exactly why we always advise our founders, just focus on building great businesses and capital will come. This is obviously a lot more easier said than done, but that's the absolute truth, right? So if you go back a couple of years, right, when uh, first quarter of 2022, when this funding winter just started, and now it's going into high gear to some extent, given the numbers that you were just mentioning, I would kind of like turn that question around and think about it from a perspective of the previous two years before that, right? The COVID time period of 2020, 2021, I would say that that was an aberration for the VC startup ecosystem. The, the 
the kind of fiscal and monetary policies that the world or the central banks across the globe adopted since the global financial crisis, it's something that the world had never seen before, right? And COVID kind of put a supercharger behind it in a way. You had 15 years of basically 0% interest rates, trillions of quantitative easing uh, back right after the global financial crisis, and especially so during uh, the COVID pandemic. It led to a whole bunch of asset bubbles popping all, all over the place. And then, you know, as Warren Buffett describes it the best, interest rates are like gravity, right? The higher it goes, the lower the asset prices come and vice versa. And we kind of like seeing that pan out over the past year on where inflation is now coming to really bite us. Naturally, starting with the Fed and central banks across the globe were forced to increase interest rates extremely quickly. Uh, this rapid rate of increase has not happened over the past 50 years, if ever. And that's just led to the more higher risk uh, asset prices having to come off quite substantially. And hence, on the back of that, venture capital obviously being more on the earlier stage, uh, the more riskier asset class has naturally led to a correction. Uh, public markets, it started with the public markets to begin with, especially like the high-flying tech stocks, where there were some obscene multiples going on, especially in the SaaS uh, side of things. That's naturally trickled, trickled down first into later stage uh, private equity investing, uh, then to growth equity, uh, VC investing, and to some extent, earlier stage. That being said, though, I think us in the Series A stage, as well as seed capital especially, uh, seed funds have been lesser affected. But naturally, capital is going to, you know, like the pendulum, it's going to swing from one place to the other. And we've just seen, a, dare I say, a healthy correction over the past year and a half. Mm -hmm. Do you see some kind of consequences of that supercharge? Because you, as the Series A investor, do you see some kind of uh, hurt valuations for, of the seed startups that uh, cannot mark up their valuations at the Series A? What do you see there? Yeah, yeah. so uh, interesting question, right? I mean, the ideal way that investing should be done, especially earlier stage investing, is you keep deploying capital at various stages, call it seed, series A, B, C, D, whichever alphabet you want. And uh, one would hope that the valuations of the company are continuing to go up, but that should be pari passu with the underlying business fundamentals also, right? There should be true underlying growth in the business, uh, top line, obviously, but the bottom line also, uh, the competitive moat of the company strengthening, and you're seeing the business flourish, and hence naturally valuations are following suit. I think given you know what I was previously mentioning, given this 0% interest rate environment and uh, tremendous amounts of capital just freely sloshing around, that link between valuation and actual business fundamentals kind of got broken. So even at the earlier stage, I started incentivizing people uh, in my industry, in the investing industry, to just basically look at how do I invest into startups where I can try to mark up my book in a much quicker basis that helps me raise my next round, thereby generating more management fees 
and the and that vicious cycle goes on, right? Rather than actually caring about the underlying business fundamentals. And even at the earlier stage, we saw a lot of that, right? I mean, if you were a fintech VC in Indonesia, having gotten into like Y Combinator in the US, you were looking at valuations of like north of 30, 40, 50 million, uh, just at like the seed plus stage, which is something that this region had never seen before. So, I mean, there'll always be certain exceptions, right? Where you truly meet this remarkable founder who's got a history of taking companies public and has done fantastically well, uh, knows how this entire space is played. But those, those should be just exceptions that kind of became like the norm in the industry where everyone was just trying to like parse the parcel to the next VC round for a much higher multiple. And then you go out and raise capital on your own fund. I think all of that has come crashing down and rightfully so. It's better for the ecosystem in the long run, both from a founder perspective and a VC perspective for this to happen. Mm -hmm. And in general, uh, do you feel some kind of pressure or tension to invest uh, in that environment? So it really depends on how your fund is structured, uh, to be honest, and which in turn means where your source of capital is from, right? So some VC funds, I think, went completely overboard, especially crossover funds, uh, funds from the US primarily, saw Southeast Asia as this great macro play. Let me just come in here and deploy tremendous amounts of growth capital with very little, if any, due diligence uh, or getting to actually know the founders. Uh, I, I think that's led to a huge, I mean, that, that, that spigot of capital is just completely dried out right now, right? So it's back to uh, the fundamentals for everyone, for the founders, as well as for the VC funds on how to think about doing investing. We ourselves, we never faced any pressure uh, at Monks Hill. Uh, we, uh, the, the structure of our fund is always thinking more about the long-term uh, viable business fundamentals of the company, uh, getting to know the founder. Uh, to give you a sense, right? We invest into series A. We are currently tracking like over 1500 companies in our CRM right now. From pre-seed stage, seed stage, we are tracking some entrepreneurs who haven't even left their companies, their larger tech companies right now, because we want to build those relationships over time develop that, uh, the, 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 earn that right to invest. And that takes time, right? So from our perspective, we've not uh, been forced to make any investments because there were a whole bunch of other companies or other funds that were sitting and going out there raising larger pools of capital. We, we would rather stay in our swim lane, raise the right amount of AUM, uh, commensurate with making anywhere between 15 to 18 investments uh, across the life of a fund at the Series A stage. Mm -hmm. And what do you see the common valuations of the seed stage and the adequate valuation that you aim for at the Series A to invest? So at like the way we look at, we make anywhere between six to 10 investments per year, right? Mm -hmm. Because all of us being on the investment side, uh, on the investments team, having been on the operating side before, 
we love to get uh, our arms, knees, entire body dirty if required to ensure that we're working very closely with the founders. And hence that immediately means that you can't make tens of investments per year without correspondingly scaling up your investing team in the back end, right? So from that perspective, we make very focused investments uh, to the tune of six, eight, six to 10 per year. And that's our business model. Like that's what we look at. That's what we know what we want to do. And that's what we focus on. Uh -huh. And what's the right way to work and help the portfolio companies in your opinion? So this is something that, uh, you know, we've discussed and debated a lot internally, right? And in fact, my first project when I joined Monk's Hill Ventures was to kind of scope out and do a lay of the land as to what's happening in our industry, figure out what the best practices are across uh, multiple venture capital funds uh, across the globe. So this is something quite close to my heart, right? And when we do get involved with early stage companies, the founder naturally has very limited resources, right? This is not like a Fortune 500 company that has departments of support systems. So the way we kind of built out our platform success team over the past year and a half is it kind of resides on three pillars, I would say. Firstly, uh, corporate development. Uh, the role of this division is basically how do I assist startups or the founding teams to raise the next round? This could be in the form of equity or in the form of debt. Uh, the latter obviously being uh, something that's a lot that's of a lot more of interest to founders right now, given uh, lower valuations. The second vertical is on the HR side, right? At the end of the day, it's the people that will make or break your business. So if you think about like the odds of a true needle mover candidate, which is basically your C-level suite uh, executives, even picking up the phone to answer it is much higher if it comes from uh, an HR person employed by a top tier fund vis-a-vis -vis the founder trying to reach out to that person. And various analysis has been done on this already. Right, so that, that's how we contribute to founders where we have an in-house uh, HR team uh, that sole responsibility is obviously to manage HR uh, for us, but the sole responsibility on the startup side to assist them to recruit their right-hand or left-hand people. Last but not the least, the third vertical is, and I'll throw this into like a lump, uh, marketing, PR, communications, et cetera. You know, like typically the founders that we meet, they are very uh, technical in nature, right? It's all about the product. Uh, but if you, you know, if you hear what Mark and Reason has to say about this, you give me a choice between a great product or a great distribution channel, I would pick the great distribution channel. Right? So it's all about setting up the right strategy and how you think about scaling up your business. How do you think about the sales team, the marketing team, uh, et cetera? And especially on that latter part, like coming up with like marketing strategies for your fund, uh, for the startup, mm -hmm. uh, that's something that is, is the responsibility of this vertical. But again, to be very clear, right? For all of the above, 
the idea is not necessarily to do it for them, but it's more about trying to help them learn and gain that muscle memory on how to build their own in-house capabilities in the long run. So we can only help them up to a certain point, right? At the end of the day, we are a fund. We do have a certain number of companies. So we do try and pick and choose and to identify what are the biggest weak points. But at the same time, we try to train the founder so that they can ensure that they can do, they can have these capabilities themselves or they can grow these capabilities over time in-house. So we organize a whole bunch of masterclasses, right? For mm. all of the above and just general best practices and stuff like leadership, management style. Uh, how do you do outbound sales? So a whole bunch of like experts that we bring on board to give advice to our uh, portfolio companies. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about learning, right? I mean, we're all in this learning journey uh, where we try to become smarter. Uh, Charlie Munger said it best, right? I try to sleep every day uh, being a little bit smarter than I was when I woke up. And if you're lucky enough to have a long enough life, the compounding effects that kick in are just, uh, it's a miracle. And that's the kind of approach we take with our founders where we keep, we obviously try to assist them as much as possible, but we really do try to help them learn on how to become better founders, sales side, marketing side, go to market stra strategy wise, you name it across the board. Mm -hmm. Great, great. Uh, can you highlight one or two uh, startups that you invested in that you was the lead in the deal and that maybe had achieved some great results after the investment or maybe just uh, the idea of the startup is uh, that you like? Yeah, so uh, one of the first uh, investments I made, which was part of our uh, internal like Monksill Venture Scouts program uh, was Saola Technologies. It's in the property tech space, uh, met uh, the founding team, uh, originally from Russia, uh, set up this amazing real estate tech business over there, moved to Canada to set up this amazing uh, quick commerce grocery business over there, which sadly did not do well. Uh, but then they decided to move to Southeast Asia and they are based in Singapore right now, uh, trying to disrupt uh, the traditional property agencies. So if you think about the problem, right? Uh, having personally just bought a property in Singapore like about a year and a half ago, you as a property buyer, you're really dependent on the agent that you are uh, being forced to work with. Uh, it's a very individual relationship that you keep growing with this agent. But at the same time, if you take a step back and you think about uh, the agency that employs these agents, they should be the ones that kind of controls the entire user journey because these agencies employ hundreds, if not thousands of agents who are running around uh, trying to source customers. So the idea that uh, these guys came up with, uh, Eugene, who is the founder of Saola, came up with was, let me try and truly disrupt this sector. Let me try and create a generative AI tech first agency that ensures that the customer journey of a user can be controlled a lot better by the company up till the point of having to kind of close this transaction 
which is where then at that point, like more think of it like a, a, a Tinder type style of being able to understand which is the perfect house for you. And then to close the transaction, you kind of know that you still want an agent involved to handhold you through that closing process. So they've empowered the agent rather than having him or her to run around trying to find their thousands of potential customers at the top of the funnel to finally close, say, three to five transactions per year, doing a lot of running around, they've kind of taken that top of the level complexity away, provided a standardized solution between the agent and the customer, and then empowered the agent to be able to close a lot more transactions because they've given the right customer to that agent. Margins will be lower. You know, gone are the days of four or 5% commission, which I think was obscene anyways in this property tech market, uh, in the property market to begin with. So smaller margins, but if I can convince the agent that look, thanks to my technology, you will be able to close 20 transactions in the year. Mm. It's a win-win-win for everyone. And then in the back end, post-closing of the deal, Financing is a big issue. And right now it's extremely, even in a developed country like Singapore, it's so manual in nature. Instead, me rather than me having to go up to lawyers separately, going up to finance companies separately, me going up to insurance companies separately, if you can have a truly tech-enabled API integrated backend that can make all of that uh, manual activities conducted in a seamless fashion, uh, then I think you're potentially onto something. So it's very, very early stage, uh, amazing founders, truly building something that can uh, disrupt this massive traditional uh, property sector in Singapore and then start scaling up for the globe. Uh, it's something that I found quite interesting. Uh, mm -hmm. So I let that investment. You mentioned that Monskill Ventures uh, track about the hundreds of the founders in the Southeast Asia. And what's the, the your personal uh, process of due diligence on the founders and the startup itself? Yeah, great question. I mean, this is one of the reasons why we try to uh, identify them young, quote unquote, mm -hmm. right? So that we have time to truly build that rapport. And it's a two-way street for us to be able to earn the right to invest and for us to be able to build a relationship with them to truly, you know, peek under the hood and see what's really happening in the business, see it evolve, see the different pivots uh, that every startup company really has to make. But when it comes to due diligence specifically, um, it, it's obviously something that we at Monksell take very seriously, right? Which is, otherwise we wouldn't be spending so many hours of our week dealing with a company or dealing with a founder that might get to a series A stage in a year, two years time, at which stage that we can invest. So we do take it extremely seriously. I, I would like to say, uh, and before going into more details about that and how we do due diligence, I, I would like to say one thing though, You know, I, I know a couple of my peers uh, have been cast in a very negative light by the media recently, uh, but having spoken to founders who have been invested by the same aforementioned peers, the DD process was extremely rigorous. Right. So DD process typically, uh, again, has three verticals. Uh, the financial aspect, where you literally 
an accountant or auditor will go into those bank statements, see if the money that's coming in and going out matches with uh, the general management ledger, which matches with the contracts that they're signing with clients, with companies, with customers, etc. cetera. Uh, the technical aspect of it, where you get a person to actually go into the code to see if what they were claiming makes sense or not. And last but not the least, the legal aspect of it, right? Where you start scrutinizing employee contracts, incorporation documents, customer contracts, whether it's all done above board uh, from a legal perspective. Typically, this takes anywhere between two to three months. All of this being said, though, regardless of the amount of due diligence and analysis you undertake, I do have to say at the end of the day, if the founder really wants to try and commit a fraud, he or she can definitely do so. Like forget even about early stage VC investing where you don't even potentially have uh, that many like numbers or that much uh, resource at your disposal uh, to do a very fine uh, due diligence on the company. We're talking about like large public companies over here, like Fortune 500 companies that have undergone so many scandals and frauds, right? And paying multi-millions of dollars to the top four auditors, and yet frauds exist. Mm -hmm. So I, I think we do have to take it with a pinch of salt, uh, that uh, which I feel the media potentially has been a bit unfair to. Uh, to a couple of my peers. And that's something that I just want to uh, point out. Mm -hmm. uh, so what are the common reasons to say no, uh, uh, in your opinion? And is there some uh, common uh, related to Southeast Asia, exactly? Look, there's, there's, it's, frauds take place uh, globally. <laughs> it's not uh, region focused. Uh, you know, you can see them and read about them in the media. They come in all shapes and sizes. Uh, things to say no to. Uh, at the end of the day, when when our uh, either us doing our own uh, forensic analysis on a startup or the vendors that we employ, and we always employ DD vendors to do uh, the required work. And we take a combination of that, what we've analyzed internally ourselves, as well as what the DD vendors have kind of uh, brought to light. In certain conditions, there are absolute no-nos, right? I mean, if there was a certain amount of fraud that was picked up in terms of they claim their revenue was X, but it, actually in reality, it was Y. There were certain insider transactions done that were not revealed to the investor uh, from the get-go. Uh, there, are, there are certain cases like that that are complete uh, no-nos. If you're in a fintech company, for example, and you don't actually have the required license, uh, but you're still performing uh, extremely regulated activities, it's a recipe for disaster, right? Mm -hmm. Coming to your point about Southeast Asia, uh, you expand into multiple countries, you only have one license in your home country, uh, and you think it's going to be okay to go uh, expand into the other ones just because you have a home country license. We've seen a number of fintech companies that have been shut down by the required financial regulator in uh, Vietnam, in the Philippines, in the lending space especially. So it's something that you know we take extremely, uh, we pay a lot of caution to, because 
typically there are no recoveries in this, right? When you committed a financial fraud or a regulatory fraud, uh, it's just a complete sharp click down to zero. So that's something that we will obviously spend a lot of time on to ensure uh, that we've analyzed the business and the company uh, very well. What about the non-legal types? For example, uh, we see a lot of deals from the Indonesia and the, the common thing that we see, for example, 40 people of staff in the uh, support center, or maybe they claim some innovation in construction, but uh, in the real life, it's just also the 50 workers uh, uh, building the uh, buildings. Yeah, so it's interesting, right? I mean, there's this whole quote unquote, fake it till you make it uh, kind of mantra that's going on in the startup ecosystem, or at least it was in the past. Look, at the end of the day, as a founder who's really trying to build something great, uh, there's an element of potentially overselling yourself, right? And overselling the, the quote unquote tech that you might have in the back end. But there's a point when it comes to the pitch being, this is what I want to build out. This is what I honestly have right now, but I can't get to that endpoint without your capital. So you have to take a leap of faith in me as the founder to be able to execute on that vision, which is something very different from, look, I got this unbelievably secretive AI deep tech algorithm in the back end. Uh, I'm kind of like not going to even show that to you uh, because of various uh, IP infringements, potential uh, issues. But just trust me, I'm going to build something that's going to be a unicorn. I, I think that latter aspect uh, has definitely died down. This whole FOMO concept of investing, given this healthy market correction, has kind of died down. And the latter part is, it is, I mean, it's fraud. Right, like if you look at Theranos and stuff, it's just outright fraud, and that's something where the founders uh, should be convicted. That there should be legal consequences for that. But for the most, for the majority, right? Like, let's not let the one percent of uh, rotten apples uh, take away from the ninety-nine percent of founders who are just out there working extremely hard, putting in those 100-hour weeks, uh, trying to build something that's great. And at the same time, though, uh, having to potentially oversell themselves a little bit. Uh, I personally don't see anything wrong with that. Mm -hmm. uh, you already mentioned the prop tech industry, but can you mention one or two more industries that you are suggesting to watch in Southeast Asia? Uh, for example, I see lots of the startups, the acceleration programs, the uh, focused VCs on the climate tech in Southeast Asia, uh, because in our region, in Central Asia, uh, we are the emerging markets in every term in the startups and the VCs, and we don't have much the specific VCs. Like uh, we have some industries that you want to highlight. Yeah, uh, maybe I'll split the answer up into two parts, right? Firstly, in terms of industries that I think are uh, extremely exciting still, uh, other than prop tech, uh, would be fintech as well as uh, health tech. Fintech, you know, I know it's gone through a huge 
booms and busts, big cycles. It's a huge, it's, it's the largest uh, vertical within, uh, I mean, after software, give or take. Uh, it's one of the biggest uh, subsects, uh, sectors within the startup ecosystem. Two things to that. Firstly, uh, I think there was a GP at uh, Andreessen Horowitz who basically came out with a statement, every startup is going to be a fintech startup. Uh, I can definitely see value behind that, uh, given you know the, the way things are panning out in this region. It's such a capital-starved uh, region in the world. If you look at the ecosystem as a whole, I think fintech has barely put a dent, like the startups uh, in the fintech space have barely put a dent on uh, the amount of money and profits that incumbents are currently experiencing. So I think there's a lot of room still for fintechs to grow on all verticals, right? I mean, payments, I think, is something that uh, some very large fintechs have already uh, have already uh, you know been created. But uh, everything else, from the lending space to the advisory space, uh, across the entire spectrum, like neobanks are just coming up. There's a whole bunch of white space, I feel, uh, that's quite exciting for me as a venture capitalist. Uh, health tech, obviously, you know, if you can deploy technology to save lives in an extremely cost-efficient manner, uh, that's something that the world is going to be better for. Uh, I think India is a poster child in that, but there's a lot of exciting health tech companies that have come up over there. Uh, empowering doctors to suddenly work, or like supercharged doctors to suddenly work with tens of thousands of patients uh, rather than maybe just like a 50 or 100, what they used to be able to do with uh, patients actually coming to their doorstep. We've made an investment into GeoHealth. Uh, that's kind of something along similar lines. Uh, so those would be so the three you know big verticals that I'm most excited about. Overlaying that with you know what's happening in the generative AI space, I think is also quite uh, exciting. Sure, it's a huge bubble, but I think this is fundamentally uh, a, 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 a true paradigm shift in terms of how we are going to be working in the future. And hence, naturally, given the capitalistic society that we live in, naturally capital will flow into that. The part about climate tech, right? Uh, I've got mixed views of that, uh, to be completely honest. I, I think fundamentally, uh, given the massive pain point that climate or global warming obviously is, at the end of the day, you need a startup to be able to be, to come up with a commercially viable solution, right? Because if you look at Southeast Asia, right? And given that most countries over here are democracies, imagine a politician trying to go up to his or her voter bank and telling a person, oh, I'm very sorry, you can't drink clean water or you can't have the light bulb in your house uh, operational 24 hours a day because we don't want a coal-powered, we don't want to finance a coal-powered plant uh, 100 kilometers away, right? Like that, that conversation just can't happen. So while I fully appreciate what's happening in Europe and the US, which are much more developed countries, and they potentially have that amount of financial resources at their disposal. I think in Southeast Asia, which is still 
very much a developing uh, region of the world. And I'd even throw in India as well as China to some extent into that uh, mix. You still have to deal with the existing problems on the ground. And then until and unless you can come up with some truly uh, earth-shattering technological innovation in the space. And in the US, you know, there's like uh, the whole fusion, like micronuclear reactors, there's deep geothermal energy sources that you could potentially try and tap into. I think something like that would be required for it to make sense in Southeast Asia. Mm. Otherwise, there's only so much uh, leave alone VC funding. There's only so much government subsidies uh, because of the aforementioned problem that I was telling you about. There's only so much government subsidy that can be deployed into this uh, vertical, which is why I think we might be a little bit uh, early stage still for climate tech solutions. Mm -hmm. What you can say about the tech talent in Southeast Asia? Uh, uh, is it possible to become like uh, the same as the India, which is becoming or you know, already became the source of the tech talent for the the whole world. What's the picture in Southeast Asia? I, I mean, India has a huge head start, right? While while the startup ecosystem might be say like I don't know, fifteen years old. Uh, if you think about Infosys and Wipro, uh, TCS, uh, Tata Consulting Services. These are like multi-billion dollar businesses that have been around for like 30, 40 years. So if you look at tech talent, it started coming from there that those guys provided these massive, they created this massive infrastructure of education and training extremely tech savvy people post, you know, and IITs and the other thousands of engineering schools out there, they provided the, the, on the ground learning and then took these people, shipped them off to the US to uh, you know, use their tech talent to help digitally transform Bank of America, AT&T, et cetera, et cetera. And then these guys have come back right now, back to India because of the growing ecosystem and set up uh, their own tech startups. So there was that huge period of 30, 40 years which is required for an ecosystem to flourish. If you look at Southeast Asia, there are some truly amazing engineering schools. I mean, NUS and NTU themselves are like in the top, I think NUS came out in the top 10 of uh, rank globally, NUS in the top 20 or 30 or something. Uh, amazing engineering schools in Vietnam, uh, in Indonesia. You've got, you know, this, this raw talent that has been neglected for so long is now finally coming to light, but it's still very, very early stages still. So mm -hmm. personally, I'm a big believer, give it another, it'll take time, give it another 10, 15, 20 years, and this raw talent will keep upskilling itself. It's gone from just purely being, you know, your iOS or Android backend developers or your website developers, they'll keep uh, enhancing their own technical skills. And they'll go up the supply chain of uh, coming up with more innovative new uh, technologies themselves. Not, nothing's to stop uh, someone smart from uh, Bandung in Indonesia from not coming up with something uh, truly spectacular uh, the way someone in Silicon Valley or uh, Israel is coming up. 
right? I mean, if you look at, as long as you have access to internet, which uh, I think governments across uh, these developing countries have done a fantastic job of, uh, sure, you might not be in the same level playing field as someone who's gone to a Stanford, but you're inching up there step by step. And it's just a function of time, I feel. Mm -hmm. And in, in fact, uh, the young generation is what I see in the Central Asia, like whose family can afford to uh, send their child uh, abroad. Uh, they're not choosing the England or US anymore. They like to go to the Singapore and Malaysia. That's what I see. Of course, I mean, look, it's it's a cost factor to begin with, and use Singapore as a pedestal or a trampoline in a way to secure a study abroad program or secure other kinds of uh, executive education courses, etc. In some of these uh, more deep tech schools, right? My my undergrad uh, school, Georgia Tech, I think has been around since the eighteen hundreds. So it's, it's just a function of a lot of time, a lot of capital uh, that has led uh, Georgia Tech, MIT, Berkeley, uh, Caltech, Stanford, Harvard, all these like big schools uh, to be at the forefront of this technological revolution that we're going through right now. But again, give it time, resources are coming over here. Uh, the way education is now being dispersed to people is not necessarily within the confined four walls or campus uh, in, at the heart of Silicon Valley, right? That can start happening over here. And I think we're already starting to see that, uh, but it will take time. Mm -hmm. And uh, last question, uh, do you have some kind of advice or maybe two uh, to the founders that they want to uh, scale, expand to Southeast Asia or Indonesia, Malaysia or Singapore? Yeah, uh, you know, not, not to end the podcast on a more dampening note, but honestly, it is a lot more difficult than it looks. Yep. Right. Having personally done this in two different startups uh, myself, don't, don't let those beautiful decks showing ASEAN as like a 500, 600 million population, north of 4% GDP growth, uh, and on all the other great macro tailwinds uh, trick you into thinking that this is going to be a sure shot winner, right? You have to deal with a myriad of regulations, cultures, different styles of working, you name it. So what, what's really important, I feel, is if you're looking at Southeast Asia, don't think of it as one collective region. It's not. It's not like going from Florida to Washington to Seattle, right? Be prepared and then some. Figure out a clear roadmap on how you want to try and figure out on how you want to roll out your go-to-market strategy, distribution channels, uh, setting up expansion, onshore, offshore, strategic local partnerships, uh, etc. Like you really need to think about that on a country by country basis, because each one's rollout is going to be different. So that's something that I would really want to, you know, advise the listeners of your podcast to pay extreme heed to 
gone are the days of infinite VC money where you can make a whole bunch of different mistakes and think it's going to be come out and you'll come out okay. Obviously, making mistakes is uh, par for the course, right? If you don't make mistakes, you're doing something wrong. That being said, though, given that you don't have infinite capital behind you to make infinite mistakes, you have to be a lot more thoughtful and strategic uh, when it comes to Southeast Asia. And, uh, you know, I, I'm always more than happy to uh, have an intellectual debate with any of your listeners who are looking to set up companies or expand in this region. All right. Thanks a lot, Arun. Great conversation. Lots of insights. And thanks, everyone, for listening. It was the Arun Pai, the principal of Monks Hill, Monks Hill Ventures, uh, the top VC in the Southeast Asia. Thanks a lot, everyone. Thanks, Arun. Thank you for having me, Sam. Thank you for listening to the Ivy Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our RSS feed on ivypodcast.com and all major podcasting platforms like Spotify and iTunes. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a rating on iTunes.